and take your Bibles this morning, open them up with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to talk to you this morning. Um, well, let me, let me, before I give you my title, let me just say that I need to confess something this morning. I almost did not break away from my series that I've been preaching through in the Gospel of Luke. For those of you who are members here at, at Calvary and have been visiting with us for a period of time, every, single, every Sunday uh, we go through the, the Gospel of Luke. We take these pericopes and we examine these sections, and we've been doing that for a little over a year now. And it's been wonderful. And I almost didn't break away from Luke today. And, and I need to confess to you why. Because I know it's Mother's Day, and I love my mother. I love my wife, the mother of my children, and I love those of you who are mothers as well. But today is ultimately the Lord's Day. And I genuinely want to honor all mothers, but my first priority is to honor God. And that said, I am going to take Mother's Day to, to break away from the preaching out of Luke. However, what I don't want you to do is think that in some way I am trying to just elevate moms today and at the expense of honoring Christ. And I think it's necessary that I say that because sometimes I think that just because it's Mother's Day, you'll come to church and you'll hear a sermon and it's just, you know, kind of a lighthearted sermon for mothers and, 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 and you can go and, and, and feel real good about yourself and all of those things. And all of that's fine, but I really hope that you understand today that I want to honor Christ through the preaching of His Word. And I, at the same time, I want to say all to you mothers, I love you. And I praise God for you. So the title of today's sermon is Christian Motherhood. And the text that we're going to be predominantly looking at is Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to go over into chapter 3 and we'll look some into chapter 4 and then we'll end back up in 2 Timothy near the end. But let me begin by addressing a theological, the theological nature of the sermon today. I'm going to lay the premise of what we are dealing with today. God created women. God created mothers. And God created motherhood. And these realities were meant to be a blessing in the world and to the world. I know that I'm blessed by my mother. The reason that I am here today is because of my mother. But I'm also blessed by motherhood. My mother mothered me. Now, sometimes I might would have said she smothered me, but she mothered me. She, she made a positive impact in my life as my mother. And I understand that when it comes to Mother's Day, that this occasion can bring up an emotional experience for some. I get this. For example, those of you who have lost a mother might find yourselves today experiencing sadness. For those of you who may have had an abusive mother, you might find yourself experiencing anger and frustration. Some of you may have been abandoned by your mother. And you might be feeling 
doubt and fear or insecurities. Some women struggle on Mother's Day because perhaps they've lost a child. And I understand how devastating that can be through the testimonies of those who have had to go through that. But for others, it may be because you are infertile. You are not able to have a child. So I get that Mother's Day can carry within itself some really challenging experiences and emotions. And while all of those scenarios that I just listed are valid issues, let me say with as much sensitivity as I possibly can, regardless of your situation or experiences, as a Christian, we must honor mothers. We must honor motherhood because God created mothers and motherhood. And God even said, honor your father and mother. God tells us to honor our father and mother. So we should want to honor what God says to honor. And by the way, having a negative experience with your mother or motherhood or even being a mother, maybe you are infertile, maybe you've lost a child. This is a testimony. Your experience is a testimony that you live in a broken world. And you live amongst broken people. But you need to understand that God's design from the very beginning was perfect. His design was meant to be good and to be a blessing. You see, God created perfection, right? Man is the one who created brokenness. We are the ones that have brought about the imperfections in this world. In fact, when we look in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, in the creation account of the world, we see all throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see this phrase, after creation, after God acts and creates, He says, and it was what? Good. And at the end of creation, after creating man and woman, the only two creatures created in His image, He said, it is very good. It was perfect. And we see in the creation account that God created the family. He created the family structure. We're going to see in a minute how He perpetuated the family. God created Adam and Eve, a man, Adam, and a woman, Eve, to love each other, and God blessed them. By the way, in the original design of God, the first marriage between Adam and Eve was the only perfect marriage there has ever been. It was. It was perfect. You see, God had given Adam and Eve only the knowledge of good. They only knew that which was good. And what that meant is because they didn't know anything evil, they didn't know anything bad, they never disagreed. They had perfect harmony. They were never frustrated. They never argued. They were fulfilled and satisfied in every imaginable way possible. In fact, listen to how God records this union in Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... 
and hold fast to his wife. This is the, perpetu- uh, the perpetuation, the perpetuity of the family. How do we know that? Adam and Eve didn't have a mother and father. So he wasn't necessarily talking to them in one sense. He was talking to their offspring. From this point forward, a man is to leave his father and mother and be joined, I love the King James Version, to cleave unto his wife, to hold fast to her. And they shall become one flesh. And he returns back to the man and his wife, Adam and Eve here. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice the oneness of Adam and Eve. They were in perfect unity. They were in perfect harmony. Then I want you to see they were naked and they were unashamed. They were fully exposed to each other without any fear of judgment or resentment or embarrassment. They were completely and totally accepted by one another. Full disclosure. Then we come to chapter 3. And this is what the scriptures show us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Or or you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good, not just knowing good, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see something that happened? The end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. By the way, there was nobody else. It was just those two. They were naked and unashamed, but by the time we get to chapter 3 and verse 7, they are naked and ashamed. They realize their nakedness. And so they took fig leaves and they covered their private parts. By the way, you didn't ask for this today, but I thought I might tell you anyway. If you want to know why you wear clothes today, here's your answer. You wear it because of shame. You wear clothing because of shame. We still practice what happened in the garden all those years ago. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their relationship with God changed. Their relationship to each other changed. They covered up. They were not secure. They ran into all sorts of issues from this. So what we need to understand as I read this is that this was a satanic attack. This was not just against them individually. This was an attack on the family. This was an attack on womanhood. This was an attack on manhood. This was an attack on motherhood. This was an attack on fatherhood. This was an attack on the marriage. 
This brought insecurities. It was always God's intention for a husband and his wife to exist in harmony and unity. God's intention was for the husband and wife to be fully exposed, being accepted by one another, to experience identity in one another, to have security in one another, to have joy in one another, to have perfect unity in one another. But now all of that is being dismantled. Why? May I submit to you, it's because Satan hates God's design. Anything God calls good, Satan hates. And God has declared all of these things good. And he has said about the man and the woman, this was very good. Satan hates that which God called good. He, cre- he hates that which God designed. And he has declared war against everything God has called good. So let's look at how Satan attacks. First of all, Satan creates doubt with what God has said. He creates doubt with the Word of God. So here we have in the garden, Satan and Eve are having this dialogue, and Satan covertly attacks the Word of God. He wants to cause Eve to doubt God's Word, and so he simply calls God's Word into question. What did he say? Did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat of every tree? Is that what God really meant? A while back, I was listening to an interview on television between a popular talk show host, um, a news anchor, and a Christian leader. And this Christian leader represents, so-called Christian leader, by the way, let me say that, representing a very large denomination in our culture that was, it's not Protestant, it wasn't a Protestant denomination, but it, it was a large denomination. And this interviewer asked the so-called Christian leader a question. Basically trying to, they were talking about gender identity. And he said this, he said, but doesn't God, he said, God's word says that, that or the, book in, the book of Genesis says that God created a man and a woman, a male and female, right? That's, that's what the word of God says. And the so-called Christian leader said these exact words. Yeah, but did God really say that? I mean, my ears were like, what? I've heard that before. He said, did God really say that? He went on to explain his position. This so-called Christian leader says this. He says, you have to understand, God is non-binary. And so God created man, or created these two individuals in his image, meaning they were also non-binary. And so this first person because he was created in the image of God as non-binary, he had a choice to choose on which gender he wanted. And so Adam simply chose to be a man, and thus Eve just simply chose to be a woman. And ultimately, saying that God, and he used the, the whole he, she, or he, him, or whatever God is, that was, those were his statements. And... I was sitting there listening to that and I thought, you know, this is exactly what we see in Scripture. Let's just create doubt. Let's cause people to doubt. Does God really mean that? Does God really say these things and actually mean what He says? You see, this is an abuse of the Word of God 
That ultimately in this context from this interviewer and this so-called Christian leader means that you can just choose to be whatever you want to be because God's non-binary, non-binary and you're created in his image. Those of us who know scripture know better. And we would expect a man with a PhD leading a major denomination in this country to know better. But obviously for some, the word of God doesn't mean that much. Just like it doesn't mean a whole lot to Satan. Secondly, we see Satan not only covertly attacks the Word of God, but he overtly attacks the Word of God. Look at what he says in 2 through 4 of Genesis 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, No, you won't. You're not going to die. He will not surely die. What does he do here? He moves from questioning the Word of God to outright rejecting the Word of God. Okay, well, yeah, maybe God did say that, but I'm just telling you right now, God's lying. Maybe the Word of God does say some things, but God didn't mean that. He's not telling you the truth. He's lying to you. This is what we see from Satan in the garden. Thirdly, Satan attacks the motive and the character of God. Listen to verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing? Remember, Adam and Eve only knew good. They only had the knowledge of good. And what Satan is doing is saying, listen, here's, here's why God is telling you not to eat of it. Number one, you're not going to die. Number two, God doesn't want you to eat of it because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding something back from you. He's keeping you from being wise about something. And, 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 and if he knows that if you eat it, you then will be like God because you'll know both good and evil. So he is trying to do what? He is attacking God's character. He is saying that God is holding you back. God wants to keep good things from you. Can you think of anything more arrogant than to claim that God is deceptive? This is the same arrogance we see today. This is the same exact tactic that I believe that we are seeing unfold in front of our eyes today in our culture. Satan wants to downplay the Word of God, create doubt. He will deny that the Bible says certain things or certain things are going to happen. And then the character of God is ultimately attacked. God is holding something back from you. Hey, if you want to sleep with 100 people, that's, that's for your enjoyment. Don't let God tell you that you can't do that if that's what you want to do. If you, want to, if you were born a man and you want to identify as a woman, that's your choice. If, if, if you want to practice deviant behavior, that's for your pleasure. Don't let God's Word suppress your happiness. And don't let the, God, God's a killjoy. So don't, don't let God dictate to you what is right and what is wrong. You see, these are the things we're seeing today. This is the lie that we have bought. The same lie that Adam and Eve have bought. The same lie that our generation has accepted, by the way. By the way, let me just show you just how far we have gone as a culture, just how arrogant we are. We are the first culture by the way, I say culture on a word, world scale. 
I believe we're not the only culture. I believe there are others accepting this. But in the history of the world, you are seeing a generation of people, the very first generation, to ever hold to a view of more than two genders. This is in the history of the world. You can't look back and trace in history where there was ever anything more than two genders. Now, you might go back and find where there were women who were masculated and men who were feminized. And you see that transgenderism but there was always two genders until you get to our generation, until you get to today's world where essentially this generation is saying on a world stage declaring this, we know better. We know better than history. We know better than science. We know better than God. Arrogance at its highest. But how did we get here? It started with doubting God's word. Did God really say that this was wrong? Does God really have any opinion about this? Then we disagree with God's word. Well, if it does say it, I don't like it. Then we deny it. Well, I just, I reject that. I don't want to believe that. And then we demean God's character. If God does say that, then he's saying it to hold me back from things that I enjoy, the things that I want to participate in, the things that I want to do. Because really, ultimately, it's all about my happiness. That is the lie we have bought. Satan is good. He convinces Eve that God has done a bad thing. God is withholding something good from her and Adam. And so it says in verses 6 through 7, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... I'll know both good and evil. She took of its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then their eyes were opened. Uh-oh. And they knew they were naked. Is this what it's like to know evil? To be shamed? To feel guilt? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is really sad, isn't it? Because for the very first time, they know evil. They already knew good. They, they knew a good marriage and a new, good relationship. They had a good relationship with God. They knew the blessings of the garden providing for them and their needs. They only knew life without pain. But now they know evil. They know what it's like to feel shame and insecure. So they cover themselves with leaves. They know what it's like to feel guilt. And so they hide from God their relationship with God is deeply affected. Now they know what it's like to make excuses. Whenever God does come to Eve and he pins her down on the issue, she says, Satan, or the serpent, is the one who deceived me. And Adam, he looks at God and he says, Eve, the woman you gave me, she's the, the, the one at fault here. Now that's competing. Competition. Now they know what it's like to experience judgment. Because God then proceeds to pronounce judgment upon them for being disobedient because what he said was truth. And so now they know what it's like to feel judged. Women, for those of you who are mothers, you know what it's like to experience childbirth. It's painful. It came from the fall. That was the curse of the woman that in childbirth you will experience pain as a reminder of Sin. Eve, this is your judgment. Adam, you're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to produce little and little and little and little. If you work, 
You know what, that, what I mean by that. It's called the IRS, right? No, anyway. Anyway, we're not going there. Now they know what it's like to feel the aging process. Chapter 3 and verse 19, God tells them, you will return to dust. You're beginning to die. What he said was true. You will surely die. It wasn't immediate, was it? But the aging process began. And for those of you who are like me, you feel the aging process after a while. All of these things are now because of evil. They don't just know good, they know evil. Because of their shame, Adam and Eve, they begin to cover themselves. They cover themselves with leaves, but they don't do enough. They only cover their private parts. And God responds to them with what? Grace. Listen to what it says in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of grace. What had to happen for God to cover them with animal skins? An animal had to die. The shedding of blood, the process began. But this was a picture pointing toward Christ who would die, who would do what no man and no woman could ever do, which was atone for their own nakedness, their own shame, and their own guilt. He's had to come and He had to be the sacrificial lamb to provide a covering for all sin and shame and guilt. And so we see this picture now pointing toward what would ultimately happen, but it's a picture of grace. But accompanied with this picture of grace is a promise. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What God is doing is making a promise to the woman that the woman will have a child, a seed from a woman who will ultimately defeat the enemy, who will crush the head of the serpent. We know that ultimately that promise will be fulfilled in Christ when he dies on the cross and raises from the dead. There the the head of the serpent will be crushed. But this promise was to a woman who would bear a child. Then in chapter 4, in verse 1, we read this. Now Adam knew his wife. The word knew is a euphemism. They had relations. And Eve became pregnant. She conceived and bore Cain saying... I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. What's she doing? She's remembering the promise. And she thinks Cain is the promise. She thinks that this is the one that God has said would come and he is going to save us. He is going to undo the curse. How disappointed she must have been as a mother after having a second child and later on as they grow up, To learn one day that her oldest son, who she thought was the promised one, killed his brother. Eve, by the way, was the first mother who knew heartache as a mother. She knew what it was like to lose a child. But folks, think about this. Her oldest son killed her youngest. And not only that, it was all her fault. She was deceived in the garden. Think about the unbearable pressure this mother had to carry through this very act of evil. But this also means something else. The promise is still out there. There is still a promise. And the promise is that a woman is going to have a son who will be the Savior. 
I think it's very interesting. I think, and I hope that you'll find this interesting as well. But in the first book of the Old Testament, there's a promise to a woman about a son who will come and who will be the Savior. In the first book of the New Testament, we are told that God visits another woman and tells her, Mary, that she will be that woman. At the beginning of both sections, Older and Newer Testaments, we see this promise to, this, to, to the woman that, God is, that she is going to give, a birth, uh, give birth to the Son of God. I want you to get this picture. It is through a woman. It is through motherhood that God promises to provide redemption. God has blessed motherhood. And it's no wonder, and it's no wonder to me that there is an attack today on motherhood. Satan will continue to launch all-out attacks on women and on motherhood because we've already seen this. Satan hates God's design. If God has declared something good, Satan is going to attack it. And what I'm about to say can no longer go without saying, but only a biologically born woman can be a mother. And only a biologically born uh, woman can, uh, can, can, can... well, I just said it, can be a mother. And a man who is born, a man cannot be a woman. This is just true on all levels, both in Scripture and in science. Notice what God's Word says in Psalms 139, verse 13 and 14. God says, For, I formed, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Who determines the gender of a child? God. Because God is the one who assigns this in the womb. And folks, what I'm saying here is just biblical. That to go against God's design is to go against God Himself. It is to go against His Word. It is a rejection of what His Word says. It says, I don't care what His Word says. And so there will be continual attacks against gender, against manhood, against womanhood, against fatherhood, against motherhood. Motherhood is being attacked so much today that our culture doesn't even want to call them mothers anymore. They're called birthing people. Folks, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I really am not trying to come down harsh on anybody by saying what I'm saying. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable. And I want you to please understand, none of this is political at all. This is biblical. These are biblical issues. And we're seeing that the Scripture tells us that God created the male and female. He declared their genders. And so it's nonsense for us to think that just because someone feels like another gender that they should be awarded all the rights and privileges of the gender they want to be. This is why Christians need to affirm biblical womanhood and biblical motherhood and not concede to the unrelenting attacks against women. If you would have told me five years ago that we would be discussing preferred pronouns... I would have laughed at you. But folks, this came on like a storm. This has rushed in on us. And at the same time, I'm not surprised. 
because of the distortion of God's creative order that we see as an attack in the garden, why should we be surprised that those attacks still exist today? I don't expect our culture to agree with us. Some of you may find yourself disagreeing with me right now. But I would be willing to bet that most everyone in here, at least maybe you feel uncomfortable, but you agree with what I'm saying. You understand, you see these things in Scripture. And I expect you to stand up and to stand firm on biblical truth, regardless if you get canceled. And you mothers and fathers, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Because you hear this sermon and you're sitting there going, hey, I agree with you. You've not said anything I disagree with. I'm right there with you, Pastor. Listen to what I'm saying. You may agree with me. Your kids are going to be confused. More than any other generation, your children are going to be deeply confused about these issues. Because you grew up never hearing this. They grow up only hearing this. And it's happening before they enter into kindergarten, by the way. There is perverse propaganda from Disney and other children's platforms that used to be safe spaces for children. They're not anymore. And not only that, to add insult to injury, we live in an era where parents are not leading their children. Their children are leading them. Parents asking their kids permission. Come on. Mothers, you birth them. You pay for your child. You feed your child. You wash your child. You wash your child's clothes. They are your child. Stop being your child's best friend and be their parent. Lead them. Love them. And show them the way of God. Don't let the culture lead your children. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Locking your child into a room and taking away every electronic device and keeping them from the culture is not the answer. They need you to show them a better way. They need you to show them God's way. And they need, you to, they need to see in you the faithfulness, uh, true faithfulness in God, in His Word, and in the things of God. So don't mother your children out of fear. Trust in the sovereignty of God as you lead your children and trust in God's design. So here's my conclusion. Christian motherhood will make a difference in the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 1, I read chapter 3 earlier. 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is what it says, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. There were actually two books written in the New Testament, first and second Timothy, written to this young man because Paul invested his life into him. He loved him. He gave his time to him. He gave effort and energy to him and even refers to him as my beloved child. But Timothy was not Paul's son. Not biologically, he was his son spiritually. But before Timothy was ever a disciple of Paul, he was a disciple of his, he was discipled by his mother and grandmother. Verse five, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. 
Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother who, by the way, were probably just first-generation Christians. Christianity was really relatively new, and most likely his grandmother came to faith around probably the same time his mother came to faith. And what they did was they learned these truths of God and they knew who God was and their eyes were open and they began instructing their son in the ways of God. The best that we can tell, Timothy's father was an unbeliever. He was a Gentile. His mother came to faith probably after they were married. And so she's learning all these new things. Her, her mother, Timothy's grandmother's learning these things. And so they're teaching them, but they're not just teaching them. They're modeling them in front of their son. Parents, listen to this. It will do you very little good to teach your children the word of God and live completely contrary to it. That's hypocrisy. Don't say this is good and not live it. Second Timothy 3, 14 through 15, as we come to the end of that section, Listen to what Paul continues to say to Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Man, these verses make it clear, right? That Timothy from a child was blessed by his mother and grandmother who taught and modeled the word of God to Timothy. That's where it started. It started in the home and it started from a mother and a grandmother who loved their son and grandson. The most important thing these two women did for their son and grandson was they taught him about Jesus. There should be no higher goal in your life, parents, than to teach your children Scripture and to pray that God would cause your child to become wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Listen, moms, future moms, grandmothers, y'all listen up. The culture has plans for your children. They want to indoctrinate them with the world's ideology. They want to feminize your young boys and they want to masculate your young girls. They want to sexually victimize your children even before they ever enter into kindergarten. Parents, you should not concern yourself with raising your children to be entrepreneurs, doctors, lawyers, athletes, or whatever occupation you have in mind. Your goal should be to lead them to know and love Jesus and let God work out the details of your child's life. You see, we've set so many goals that are not bad, but at the expense of what have we done that? At the expense of what have we done that? So today is Mother's Day. And today we do honor our mothers. But today is really the Lord's Day, right? And it's about honoring God. And how do we honor God? Through humility and obedience to His Word. That's how we honor God. Jesus said, if you love Me, you will be obedient to the things that I say. I wonder this morning if you're listening and you hear this and you know that Christ is not your Savior but you desire to know Him as your Savior, would you be humble and obedient today to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to confess your sins to Him and to call on His name? That's where it starts. That's where being a parent starts, by the way. It starts with trusting God for God's design, God's purpose, 
and God's will for your life. Let me pray for us. Father, as we hear this message, Lord, certainly we are touched in so many ways because these are very sensitive issues in our culture. We're touched in so many ways because it's uncomfortable to see where we're at and to talk aloud about these things because of the repercussions that we fear might come upon us for holding to such beliefs. Lord God, help us that we will no longer fear being canceled by others. Help us to live in the love and fear of God. Lord, help us not to worry about what the world thinks, but to be greater, greatly concerned about what you think. Help us to hold your word as our prized possession that you've given to us, such a blessing that you've given to us your word. You've not hidden anything from us. You want us to know what you, what you said. You want us to know what you meant. You want us to know who you are. And you want us to know who we are. And God, I pray for those today who are struggling with their identity. I really do, Lord, that you would help them to hear the gospel, to know that the truth is what you have given to us. It's not their truth or our truth or anybody's truth. Lord, it's your truth. So Lord, I pray that you would make people wise for salvation today as you did Timothy and so many of us here. God, I pray if there is any here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, that they would hear this message and know in their heart their need to know Christ and would call on your name, trusting in you and following you, turning from their sins and following you. God, help us. And God, help our mothers. God, help our men to stand up and be men and speak up for women today. Break our hearts for the relentless attacks against stripping away everything that you have declared good. But help us, Lord, who know the truth, to be bold, to stand firm, and to not waver on these issues. And may you get glory through it all, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.